Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we have a good one for you today. We are so fucking excited (laughs) to talk about this one. (laughs) Yes. This has been one that if you follow us on Instagram, you've probably seen pop up a couple times in polls. And although it did not win in those polls, it has won in our hearts. And you are going to be so pleased to hear about it. This movie fucking rules. (laughs) Like, I haven't been as excited to talk about a movie in a, I don't know. I don't know when the last one, maybe Jennifer's Body in terms to like really? match the excitement. Oh yeah. my, that's huge. For me, yeah, that's huge. Well, you can tell by the title of this episode that we are talking about 2019's Saint Maud. And you might have seen this one slip under the radar because I think it got held up in some releases due to COVID things. Yes, I did see that. So you might be like, wait, what the fuck? Like, I don't remember that coming out, but that's <laughs> probably because it wasn't able to hit theaters in the way that it should have and maybe flew under the radar, but it is an A24 film. Mm-hmm. So we know and love them. Mm-hmm. Right up there with Midsummer, Hereditary. I know X that was just released recently. We haven't done it yet, but that's also A24. The Witch. Absolutely. Yeah. 824 definitely excites me. And this is no exception. So Saint Maud is directed by Rose Glass. She has directed a number of short films, including 2014's Room 55, which seemed, based on what I read, to have made a splash. But this is her feature film debut. She was nominated for two awards at the 74th British Academy Film Awards. Which I think is interesting because I'm assuming this is like the Academy Awards in America, which we've talked about before. You don't really see too much horror representation there. So I'm wondering if British movies are a little different, but I thought that was cool. And she has another film in post-production titled Love Lies Bleeding. And that is a romantic thriller starring Kristen Stewart. There we go. Okay, so something to look forward to. A little bit of pre-plot trivia. So Rose Glass originally wrote Maud with a more explicit backstory, but removed most of it in the final draft as she found it too similar to Carrie, saying, quote, in early drafts, the character's backstory was quite different. She had this very extreme religious upbringing, went to Catholic school, all that stuff. But it just felt like a story I'd seen before, and it wasn't one I was particularly interested in retelling. So I figured I'd bring that up up front just because I thought it was interesting. And also, I think there is a theme of ambiguity throughout this film that I think taking that backstory out helps underscore. So that will be a common theme. And also, despite being a film revolving around religion and Christianity, no passage or verse from the Bible is ever recited, which I also think is very different. I feel like the Bible and Bible verses are a very common theme in religious horror films focused on, you know, Catholicism or Christianity. And I didn't even notice that until I read this fun fact after watching the film. I feel like we get a lot of images of religious figures in this movie, like a lot of like prayer cards and stuff like that. So it's very visual rather than literal, but we do hear Maud praying a lot. It's almost interesting because in last week's episode, we talked about a part of the reason we didn't like 1993's Body Snatchers was because there was a lot of voiceover from the main character, Marty. But these voiceovers are fucking... Mm, powerful (laughs) like her prayers just have so much going on in them i wrote all of them down fret not but uh (laughs) so good and i figure i'll introduce our ladies up front just because i want to make sure that we talk about them maude is played by morphid clark this is her most recognizable role although she's been in some other films including a david copperfield adaptation and pride and prejudice and zombies which i've never seen but again 
Pride and Prejudice came up last week. It's coming up again. And it's also going to come up right now (laughs) (laughs) because Jennifer L. is our Amanda Cole. We'll be hearing a lot about her. And she is best known for playing Elizabeth Bennett in the 1995 BBC miniseries version of Pride and Prejudice. She's also in so many other things. She's a really great actress. And I'm not just biased because she was Elizabeth Bennett one time. We also have Lily Knight. She plays Joy, a minor supporting character. She's in a bunch of TV series, including Call the Midwife. And then Lily Fraser as Carol. And she has a few supporting roles in film and TV, including one episode of the Netflix series Sex Education. I like how British or English actors seem to always have to make an appearance in some kind of classic tale. <laughs> like how like every young Canadian actor was on Degrassi at some point. <laughs> like it's it's kind of like that. <laughs> yes. So those are our ladies. And I think we can get into the plot. Let's go. All right. So we open. It is green and it is drippy. That is how we are opening this movie. We get a panning shot down where you can tell somebody is sitting on the ground, is damp. It's kind of looking like the beginning of Saul. We're seeing a blood spattered face staring at a dead body that is on a hospital bed. And yeah, Maude's face acting is nuts, but in like the best way. She just has a very blank expression. Her pupils are shot. Her hands are bloody and her palms are open and to her sides, which I thought was very reminiscent of Jesus, Mm -hmm. obviously. She's just staring and then she lifts her head up and sees a beetle on the ceiling and looks to be concerned that she's seeing that. And then we are hit with the title card. Next scene, we can see that some time has passed and Maude is in her own apartment about to eat dinner and she prays. And like Shay mentioned, we get a voiceover when she prays most of the time and we hear her thoughts. She says, Dear God, forgive me my impatience, but I hope you will reveal your plan for me soon. I can't shake the feeling that you must have saved me for something greater than this. She is starting a new chapter. You can tell she's going on this next venture And she just wants this to reveal her purpose because she's feeling a little lost, a little listless. I laughed because she's having tummy problems. She even says to God, like, I took an ibuprofen because I've been feeling so nervous. And it's just like, I'm like, we love a girl with tummy issues. Mm -hmm. And she said they're amplified by her cramps. So her period is coming. Mm -hmm. And I love how she ends her prayer after she asks for guidance or clarity. She's like, not that I'm complaining or anything. Right. (laughs) That made me laugh out loud. But yeah, it's revealing to us that she is lost and she's looking for direction and she's hoping that some kind of purpose will be shown to her. So yeah, she's starting a new post. She arrives at this post, which is a huge isolated house on top of a cliff almost outside of town, but it's giving, I don't know. Dracula's mansion, kind of. There's a lot of stairs. And that's something that's very present in this movie, too, is her going downstairs, her walking upstairs. And there's, like, a lot of steps that lead, like, from the base beach all the way up to this mansion at the top. The ascension. Yes. Looking very ominous, for sure. So she rings the bell and meets, I guess, the nurse that she's taking over for. She gives her a quick rundown of the patient's needs and informs her that, quote, her majesty is, quote, a bit of a cunt. (laughs) Okay, so... So Maude goes to her new room. Immediately, she does some redecorating. She takes down an old picture and hangs up her crucifix. So then we meet Amanda, who is the person that Maude is going to be the live-in carer for. Amanda's 49. She has lymphoma of the spinal cord. Mm. And we hear in a voiceover, Maude say to God, I dare you'll be seeing this one soon. So her condition's terminal. She's not going to get any better. 
Amanda's just more independent and direct. We see her like putting herself in her own wheelchair and wheeling herself down and just being more generally self-confident where Maude is definitely more subservient. We get the background that Amanda was a dancer and Maude in voiceover says that she doesn't tend to like creative types because they tend to be self-involved. We get that green light again whenever Maude prepares for bed. So what is that meaning? The next morning, Amanda is laying on a very cross-like table. You can tell it's like a stretching table of sorts, and Maude is doing stretches with her, and her cross necklace falls out from under her scrubs, and Amanda plays with it. She's like, ooh, hello. (laughs) It's it's very cute, and, you know, Maude kind of, like, tucks it back into her shirt, very embarrassed, and Amanda asks Maude, oh, like, who's your saint? And she says, Mary Magdalene is my saint. And she's like, that's cool. And then Amanda notes, you're prettier than the last one. Yeah. Ooh, we got some sapphic shit going on. Yeah, I love it. We do. We do. I feel like the fact that Amanda asked who her saint was suggests that even if, and we'll find this out, she doesn't really ascribe to Christianity that maybe she grew up. Because I grew up Christian and I don't even know to ask people that. I didn't even know that people like- you Had were, a saint. Yeah. Which like, I don't know if that's what your confirmation name is supposed to be. That's I don't the only know. thing I was thinking of as yeah. like, oh, who's your confirmation saint or whatever. But yeah, I've never been asked back in those days. Like, what's your saint? Yeah. What's your saint? <laughs> who's your saint, bro? What's your no. saint? <laughs> I'm a Mary Magdalene rising. But <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Mary Magdalene, I did a little bit of research because I was curious about her response. According to my favorite website, (laughs) (laughs) Catholic.org, Mary Magdalene is the patron saint of contemplative life, converts, glove makers, hairdressers, penitent sinners, people ridiculed for their piety, perfumeries, pharmacists, sexual temptation, tanners, and women. Hold Just all the women. All, yeah, all <laughs> women. Hold all those things in your mind. You don't really have to pay attention to the glove makers, hairdressers, or like perfumeries, but the other stuff I feel like is pretty relevant. And Mary Magdalene's, I guess, sainthood or what she's a patron saint of may have something to do with her licentious reputation in Catholicism as a sexually immoral woman, or according to the Da Vinci Code, her status as Jesus's possible wife. Also, I did a little bit, (laughs) I don't know why I was interested in this, but I did a little bit more research about Mary Magdalene and found that in recent years, she has become, as Corey Gareth puts it in the title of his Eden article, quote, a digital queer. And this is kind of in light of the almost like sexual tension that has already started to be sowed between Amanda and Maude and the tension that will continue. So Gareth lists many examples of Mary Magdalene appearing in recent popular culture, including Lady Gaga's portrayal of her in the 2011 Judas music video, and in season 11 of RuPaul's Drag Race, when, quote, the series' remaining contestants were tasked with performing an adaptation of RuPaul's Queens Everywhere. Early in the performance, drag queen Akira C. Davenport poses the question, quote, where is the body? This line sparked the creation of so many memes— One of the most famous by comedian Dwayne Perkins, who tweeted a gif of Davenport's performance with the line, quote, when Mary Magdalene opened Jesus's tomb. (laughs) (laughs) And for those wondering, the Bible says that Mary Magdalene is the one who found Jesus's missing body three days after his death. 
So Gareth writes, Rendered via GIF, Mary dons the guise of a drag queen who, in the absence of Jesus's body and the aftermath of the resurrection, decides to move. Mary Magdalene's embodiment comes into quite clear focus. Quote, bitch, she's the body. <laughs> Layering this response back into Perkins's meme, Mary Magdalene's question circulated through digital and queer networks on an infinite three-second loop is answered. Not unlike other GLBTQ plus and pop icons recent proclamation, the gift Akira reminds us all as we watch her dance, quote, bitch, I'm Mary Magdalene. She has a queer body and all the desires it contains worth taking seriously. Isn't that cool? Any queerification <laughs> of Catholic culture, I'm for it. This is great. Yes. This was a blind spot <laughs> for me because I don't watch RuPaul's Drag Race, but... I feel like we have to just post that gift now and be like Saint Maud with no context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, yes, I love that. But she's also like Mary Magdalene, I feel like many times has gotten the short end of the stick. You know, she plays such an important role in this religious storytelling because I guess of her role or her, I don't know, her being like the other Mary, like as opposed to the Virgin Mary, she's Mary Magdalene. She was a sex worker. Like she always gets the short end of the stick. And I kind of love that she was kind of serendipitously taken in and made into like this part of popular culture and queer culture. I just think that's so cool. It's also interesting, though, that being that there is a sex worker in this movie and Maude is so dismissive of her and is so, like, denying of her. I didn't even fucking think of that. That's crazy. And we're going to get to her. We'll get to her. Okay, let's keep going. So we get an interesting scene of Maude looking through Amanda's books and posters from her dancing days. And, you know, she's kind of just, like, moving things around and really seeing how accomplished and on top of her game Amanda was before she got sick. And Amanda's young. She's 49. Like, she could have kept going on, but she got so sick and hasn't been able to work in the same way. And in terms of, like, the dances that she choreographed... I listened to the Dead Meat podcast. They reviewed this in like a rapid review. And Chelsea had said that she could see Amanda in the world of the Suspiria remake. Like she would be in the Tilda Swinton role. And I'm like, that's so right. We have to cover that remake. Yeah, absolutely. But it's curious because her studio or her organization was called K666. You see that emblem on all of the posters that Maude is flipping through, which is very interesting. 666, that's the devil's number, yeah. Exactly. So Amanda is getting ready for some friends to arrive, and Maude leaves just as, well, I guess it's one friend, but Maude leaves just as he arrives because she's been asked to stay away. So I guess she's been shooed from the house. However, Maude gets called back early. Richard is the friend. He and Amanda have been watching Amanda's old film from when she was dancing. And Amanda has gotten sick from overly drinking and smoking. And she pretty quickly vomits on the carpet after Maude returns. Yeah, and Maude puts Amanda to bed and is lamenting about how oh, Richard always used to want to fuck me. And now he just <laughs> feels sorry for me. Oh. And it's it's sad because she was wearing a wig for that encounter. And now she has the wig off. And you mm-hmm. can tell that she's really like battling with her sense of femininity a little bit. She tells Maude, stay with me. I don't want to be alone. Like, sit with me. And she starts asking Maude about her job. Have you seen a lot of death? Maude says, yes. But when he came, everything changed. So we're learning now that Maude has found God very recently. And Amanda mm-hmm. notes this like, oh, this is a recent conversion. And Maude says, yes. Amanda asks, when you pray, do you ever get a response? And <laughs> this is where it gets into like, whoa, territory. 
almost mother territory, but like mm-hmm. definitely more sexual because Mott says sometimes he talks, but he more so moves inside me. When he's pleased, it's like a shiver or sometimes a pulsing and it's warm and good. He's just there. Sounds a lot like an orgasm to me. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess in the spirit of sharing, Amanda talks a little bit more about how she's feeling about death in this conversation. She's clearly scared. And Maud kind of takes this opportunity to talk a little bit more about God in the afterlife. And after this touching moment, Amanda calls Maud my little savior. This is such an intimate conversation because mm-hmm. they're holding hands. Amanda's saying that she thinks about the moment that she is going to die a lot. Like, who's going to be with me? Am I going to be alone? And then what? nothing tell me i'm wrong so you can just tell that she's having like a really big crisis of faith and this is where maud begins to get on her mission to really save amanda's soul a little bit and this is definitely the seeds of that but as maud exits the room the lights flicker Uh uh-huh she appears dazed and the lights flickering is almost like is it at the pulsing oh And she's climbing the stairs, one hand on the guide rail and one hand flat on the wall. She's gasping. She lays her cheek in both of her hands against the wall. She's breathing heavily like it sounds like something. Yeah, she's euphoric, right? And you can tell her face is experiencing a moment of great pleasure, right? She has a, a slight smile. And yes, it does appear that at the tippy top of the stairs, she has a nice orgasm. At the tippy top. At the tippy top. Which, again, going back to what you said about stairs is making me think she's ascending the stairs, the ascension, Mm, again, the build up, up, all of that being very symbolized in the stairs, which I love, hadn't thought about before. Then we cut to the next morning. Well, before that, and I wanted to ask you about this. We see a scene of Maude pouring out pills on a towel and then she kneels on them, crushing them and starts praying. Oh, yeah. This is the next morning. Oh, this is the next morning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. like, do we think... Those, like, are antipsychotics? Like, what are those pills? So I admittedly didn't get a good look at what she actually pours on the floor. I thought they were, like, seeds. Oh, but I thought they were pills. Maybe they were pills. I don't know. If they were, I have no idea what they would be. Because I don't remember pills, aside from Amanda's, ever being shown. But could it be a callback to what happened before? And Perhaps. I don't know. Okay, so that's in the balance. But yeah, she does kneel on them, which is our first example of her practicing masochistic prayer. It reminds me of, again, the Da Vinci Code, when that fellow kind of flagellates himself. It reminds me of the Carrie remake. Oh, yeah! Mm-hmm. With um, Margaret. Yeah. Yep. So this is something we've heard about before. And we get another voiceover as she prays. Again, this is playing over shots of her day, more physical therapy. She's emptying Amanda's alcohol bottles. She's doing the dishes, etc. And in her voiceover as she prays, you know, we get the sense that Maud clearly feels like it is God's wish for her to save Amanda's soul. She's feeling very good about this. She's sounding like this is what she's perceiving as her purpose here. And suddenly there's a knock at the door, which kind of startles Maud out of her... <laughs> It's like joyful daily activities. No one is expected, so she's surprised, but she opens the door and a woman comes in anyway. 
This is Carol. And even though Maude is like, it's much too late. Amanda is sleeping. She cannot see anyone. Carol just kind of laughs at her and moves through the house to Amanda's room. Yeah, she says she's expected. And I wrote down it was interesting that Carol arrives after a moment of pleasure for Maude. Like she has another kind of pulsy moment when she's washing the dishes and she puts her own hand (gasps) on her throat. And then Carol knocks. And I'm like, is this some Adam and Eve shit? Where like... Carol is very obviously queer coded. She's got the pixie cut. She's dressed very alternatively, almost like Jen mm-hmm. from our 93 Body Snatchers <laughs> yes. movie. I know a gay when I see one, and this is a gay. And so I'm wondering, like, is this kind of like the beginning of. And it's almost like Mother, too, where it's mm-hmm. like man and woman fuck, and then their sons show up. Yeah. It's so like Maude like, is the homemaker. Yeah. She's making this space and it's interrupted. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I was like, that's interesting. And as Maud washes her face, this is also mother-esque. Like as Maud washes her face, her hands are in the sink and she sees blood, almost kind of foreshadowing her frustration. It's giving yellow tonic for mother. Yeah. Okay. She got a nosebleed. Oh, it was a nosebleed. Yeah. Okay, 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 okay. So she's frustrated, I guess. Is it a frustration nosebleed? Also, it's important to note here that the visual of a swirling drain is going to become very consistent and very important as the movie goes on. And this is the first iteration of it. And as she's standing at the sink, she hears laughter from down the hall. So perhaps maybe we're also getting a sense of jealousy as well, that this new Carol woman has come into the house and now has Amanda's time and is enjoying that time with Amanda. The next morning... Maude is prepping Amanda's medication and she sees Carol walk out the door. But before Carol walks out the door, she is counting cash. Mm. So we are presuming that Carol has some sort of arrangement with Amanda of the sexual variety. We're assuming just based on some of the noises that we heard the previous night. And then we have a scene with Maude and Amanda sitting together for lunch. They're eating soup on the couch. (laughs) And Maude goes to pray before eating. And Amanda... It wasn't in a mocking sense. It no. really seemed very genuine. Starts mimicking Maud, just trying to really see like, oh, this is how you pray. This is how you do this. And, you know, Maud is thanking God for the food, but then also wishing for God to look after Amanda in her health. And Amanda seems touched by that. And Maud begins gasping. God enters her. And Amanda's like, oh, is he here? And Maud nods. And she's like, I feel it too. And oh, my God, <laughs> the fucking sapphic. Like, both of them are breathing heavily, and then Amanda reaches over and clutches for Maud's fingers as both of them climax on the mm-hmm. couch together. Mm-hmm. Or appear to. So after this encounter, which also, again, we've only seen Maud have these sensations in private, and now she shared almost that like private moment with Amanda. I think that that's also part of the reason that underscores why this moment is so significant to her. It also is switched back and forth with a montage of Maude stretching Amanda on the table Mm -hmm. and then laying together on the floor doing yoga. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, whose perspective is this coming from? Like, is this Maude thinking of moments of her and Amanda while this thing is happening and they're holding hands? Or is this Amanda being horny? Because Mm. we know now through the presence of Carol that Amanda is sapphic to some degree. Mm -hmm. So it's like, whose perspective is this coming from? Like, is Maude looking at Amanda with these eyes? We don't know. So that night, or maybe a couple nights later, I'm not sure, but eventually, soon after this experience, Maude is with Amanda as Amanda is getting ready for whatever is going on that evening. And Amanda gifts Maude a book of William Blake prints. 
It is addressed to Maud, my savior, with little angel wings sketched in there. Maud appears just absolutely captivated by this book as she peruses it. But then she is distracted as Carol enters the kitchen, pops champagne all over the floor, and then Maud kind of gets up and cleans it up. Maud goes upstairs to prep for bed, and instead of going to her room, she listens at Amanda's door and peeks through the crack to see her and Carol kissing and dancing. And then I was unsure if Amanda saw Maud watching, but Amanda, she's wearing lingerie with like a slip, and she like closes her robe a little bit more after looking at the door. So I don't know if she senses that Maud is looking and mm. judging or is embarrassed to some degree, but Maud definitely is upset by this. So the next morning, she confronts Carol and tells her to leave Amanda alone. Carol's like, dude, our arrangement's none of your business. Like, you're her nurse. You don't need to be worrying about these mm -hmm. types of things. And Carol challenges her, saying, like, just because you don't like that she sleeps with women, because obviously Maud is coming off as a very religious figure. She dresses very conservatively. She always has her hair up, but she, you know, she doesn't really have a pronounced sense of, like, femininity or inclusivity in the way that she goes about things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then she gets mouthy. She tells Carol, you can have an eight-inch cock for all I care. <laughs> And I'd still be telling you this, which, she's, <laughs> which I loved. I was uh -huh. like, oh my God, great. What she's going through is spiritual. It's life and death. She is dying and she doesn't need to spend her last days worked up over a silly girl that doesn't care about her. And Carol's like, I do care about her. And Mom's like, not enough. And it's just like, not as much as I do. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Carol just tells Maude, fine, that she'll comply. And Maude seems kind of impressed with herself that Carol actually listened, listened to her. Yeah. But she quickly tells Carol, but don't tell Amanda I said this. <laughs> so a little bit weaselly. And then, of course, another voiceover plays with another montage of Amanda and Maud stay together. There's more bonding and laughter and a strengthened sense that Maud's time with Amanda is amounting into something great and full of purpose. She says, we don't need anyone else. Yes. So again, it's like, what are these feelings? Like, well, who's the we? Like, is this your family now? Or are you loving this partnership a little too much? Are you jealous? Mm -hmm. It's it's a lot. Yeah. Later, Maud is out and about town and an old acquaintance approaches and calls her Katie. What? <laughs> okay. So this woman, this is Joy. She knows Maud as Katie. Through dialogue, it is made known that Katie slash Maud used to work with Joy at her previous post at a local hospital. Joy is asking Maud if she's still nursing. Maud says yes. And Joy seems kind of shocked by this. She asked, you know, does your agency know what happened? And Maud says yes, which do we know if that's truthful or not? I don't know. But then, of course, that is bringing us back to that opening scene and also wondering, well, what did happen? Very unsettling scene for sure. Yeah. And this is where I really started to fuck with this movie <laughs> because... I love that we're obviously seeing this movie through Maude's eyes. And we know that Maude's eyes are perhaps not the most sympathetic eyes because, you know, her views and her religiousness and how perhaps she views Amanda, how territorial she is of her and how she's like making decisions on behalf of her that perhaps she doesn't have the license to. But now it's like, ooh, can we even trust her? Mm-hmm. It's, it's fucking... Ugh. So... Maude breaks off the combo. She's embarrassed. She takes Joy's number, but is kind of like, I need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Back at the house, she's hanging out with Amanda, and Amanda answers the phone happily, saying like, oh, I didn't expect to hear from you. And we can tell 
it's Carol on the other end of the phone and Maude is pissed. She's staring at water as it boils and you could tell she's like hating that she's losing control. But then when she goes to bring Amanda her tea, Amanda refuses it and says, I want to go to bed, even though it's only 5 p.m. She looks angry. She looks heartbroken. So Maude is like, oh, maybe Carol broke things off with her. Oh, yes. So with obviously nothing to do the rest of the evening, she sits alone watching TV in the living room and then decides that she's going to get up, go to the kitchen and burn the shit out of her hand on the burner. Which I was interested in the motivation with this because we see her watching TV and there's a bunch of distorted voices Mm -hmm. and you could tell that, you know, her mind isn't quiet. So was that her way of like, silencing her mind like perhaps if she was leaning on pills she's kind of dipping back into these delusions a little bit that's a really compelling point because otherwise like or you could read it as her resistance against her and amanda being together is kind of like taken down and maybe she's fighting against these like queer feelings she's having like like what is the self-harm achieving I was looking at it for more of like a punishment angle. Maybe she knows she did something wrong by trying to take more control of Amanda's life. Or like you said, maybe she is trying to restrict these feelings that she's having for Amanda, whatever they may be. But you're right. Like thinking about it again with those distorted sounds, the scene felt very loud and a little bit chaotic Mm -hmm. for her as she sat there. So maybe it was to quiet things down. I don't know. Again, another way that this movie is so ambiguous and you kind of have to take meaning from it where you can. So the next morning, Amanda's acting distant and she's on her phone a lot and ignoring Maude and like laughing at her text messages. And Maude's like, all right, what the fuck? (laughs) So she tells Maude, oh, I have a list of things you need to go get from the store for tonight. Then the scene cuts and Amanda's throwing a banger, like a 1920s looking fucking banger. Everyone's dolled up, dressed mm-hmm. to the nines. Maude is like stuck in the kitchen, preparing the fucking hors d'oeuvres and looking miserable as fuck. You know, not part of the fun. She's angrily chopping vegetables. Again, very reminiscent of the Carrie. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the original Carrie. <laughs> She's especially angry because Carol is there. Oh, yes. And is saddled right up to Amanda, and Maude is not fucking having it. Yes, and as the party continues, Maude, she's working the party, right? So she's in the kitchen most of the time, but she's out and about, I don't know, doing something with plates. She's nearby to Amanda and Carol and other acquaintances as they sit on the couch. And she overhears their conversation, which Amanda definitely intends for Maude to overhear. The guest asks about Maude, how's it working out? Are you having a menage a trois with Carol? And Amanda says, no, Maude doesn't like Carol. And she says, quote, it's funny. I can't figure out if she's a bigot or if she's just jealous. You know, she went sneaking behind my back to try to scare Carol away to save my soul, if I understand correctly. And as Amanda says that last bit, she turns her head and looks directly at Maude, again, showing that she knows Maude is listening and she wants her to hear what she said. Maude tries to walk away, but Amanda's like, don't walk away when I'm trying to talk to you. Oh my God. Come back here. And I'm just like, ooh, mommy. Um, (laughs) She listened. So she asks Maude, so what is it? Am I indecent? And Maude says, no, you're lost. Mm. 
Maude is overwhelmed. Yes. She begins to start, I guess, like feeling God again. And I'm wondering, like, why is God coming on to her now? Because she's proclaiming, like, oh, you're a lost soul. Like, she's, like, giving his word or something like that. Mm-hmm. But Amanda's friends corner her and put a napkin on her head. Like and, a little nun habit. Like a little nun habit. <laughs> and it, it feels really mean. It is mean. It's very, like, junior high. Yeah. Again, very Carrie. Mm-hmm. Almost. With the, with the tampons and the pads. Mm-hmm. Amanda kind of changes tone a little bit. She's like, you're so young. I just want to see you loosen up a little bit. But Maude is not interested. And then, okay, what does she say here? She says, oh, yes, of course. How could mere human frivolity possibly compete with the Heavenly Father's warm, hard pulsing? And then Maude <laughs> slaps the shit out of her. <laughs> oh, my God. And it causes Amanda's nose to bleed. This was no light slap. It is hard. And right away, we cut to the next day, and Maude is in her supervisor's office. She's told she cannot talk to Amanda, she's definitely terminated, and that she's lucky that Amanda won't be pressing charges. So she's back to the small studio apartment. She sets back up her little religious figure shrine and sees the beetle, so bad Mm. things are coming. And she goes on a very long prayer And there's awesome cinematography in this shot. I wrote literally word for word everything down because this whole (laughs) thing, you could tell how lost she's feeling. So she says, God, all I feel of you now is pain, a gnawing, burning. Maybe it's ulcers or cancer or appendicitis. If you're trying to teach me something, I can't see what it is. Quite frankly, it all just seems like such a waste. I was ready and open and alive. And this is my reward. Unemployable, unoccupied. Perhaps you aren't as wise as I thought. Perhaps I wasn't paying enough attention. I can't help but feel like an act of spite has occurred. If this is how you treat your most loyal subjects, I shudder to think of what awaits those who shun you. And there's awesome cinematography that's going on where she's walking on the beach and there's a bunch of upside down shots. There's two upside down shots in this monologue. And that's important because all of Amanda's posters are her laying back upside down. So it's almost like she's kind of like relating herself to this sin or she's relating herself to this person who shuns God or who she knows now openly shuns God because Amanda, you know, made fun of her at the party. And during this scene, Maud sees a new nurse with Amanda at the beach. So she knows that she has been replaced. So that night, Maud dresses up, puts on makeup for the first time we've seen, and grabs a beer and sits alone at a table in a crowded bar. She makes eyes with a guy across the room. And next thing you know, they've linked up by like an exit. And she gives him a quickie hand job before he leaves. Okay, she's not done. She stays sits down at the same table with another beer and tries to connect with a group of friends at the table next to her. This scene is so awkward. (sighs) It's so good at making you uncomfortable. She hears them tell some kind of joke and she's kind of listening by and starts laughing, but they kind of look at her like, what are you doing? And she kind of takes the cue to back off. So she's alone again and she is drunk. We see her rip a shot at the bar Suddenly, she looks down. The beer in front of her starts to swirl like a vortex. She freaks out, backs up from the bar, and then runs into a guy who's like, oh, it looks like you owe me a beer. Next thing you know, they're back at his place having sex. But while they are having sex, she starts having flashbacks from the incident before of her trying to resuscitate, I guess, the person on the table. And she freaks out, cuts off the intimacy, and she kind of lays. She looks very defeated. She is obviously upset based on her flashback. (sighs) I know. 
And then, you know, trigger warning, the guy she's with continues and then he rapes her essentially while she kind of lays inert and motionless. The whole scene is so visceral because the scene is being cut back and forth between her thrusting into this guy. She's on top and he's on bottom and then her giving chest compressions to this woman. Mm -hmm. But then the scare is that she starts giving chest compressions to the guy she's fucking. Oh, yeah. And his chest bursts open. Oh, yeah. So we know that is how the original person that she was caring for died is that she was trying so hard to stop that person from dying that she burst their chest cavity open. Oh my god. Which explains why the blood was all over her hands and her face and yeah, it's very graphic. And then, yeah, the rape scene afterwards is very uncomfortable. And if that's not bad enough, after he finishes, he taunts her, apparently in his perception, some kind of licentious past that she had had. He's like, I know you used to go out with one of my friends, blah, blah, blah. I used to see you around all the time. So we're getting a little bit more context again. She used to live a very different life than she had when we saw when the movie started. She leaves... Again, walks down these stairs to her studio apartment and the shots are turning. You could tell that she's intoxicated. She's drinking water straight from the faucet. We've all been there, girl. Um, (laughs) And this is the first time we actually see her pray out loud, Mm. except for the couch scene where she's praying with Amanda. But this is the first time that her prayers are said out loud. She's like sitting at her table and she's crying and she says, I did everything. I changed it, didn't I? I thought I did what you told me to do, didn't I? Please don't let me fall again. I'm begging you. I'll do anything. Just please guide me. And then her hands start shaking. She projectile vomits. It's giving exorcism. A little bit. (laughs) And then there's these fireworks going on outside as she's like falling and crawling on the ground. So the sound design's all crazy. And then the water from the faucet starts overflowing the sink and it's spilling all over the counter. Her body is contorting. And this isn't like the pleasure experiences that we've been seeing thus far. This is much more like Mm possession-esque. Like she's jerking and it's very uncomfortable to watch. She sees a beetle and then she's released for a second, but then she starts floating like she, it looks like she's being pulled up from her center, like very typical floating and her limbs are loose and her eyes are open and the fireworks are going on in the background. It's such a cool fucking shot. Like it looks so fucking good. What do you think that's supposed to mean? Because I guess the next scene, she seems back on track with God. Is that supposed to be like a sign that she's perceiving he's sending like... I found it interesting that she said, please don't let me fall again. And then that's what she does. She's crawling on the floor and then she's being lifted up in air. So it's almost like God being like, I'm still here. Like, I still got you. Like, I'm not letting you fall. But just because I'm doing that doesn't mean that everything's going to be okay. It's kind of like, don't you doubt me now. Mm -hmm. Look what I can do. And then so begins. This is kind of where the line between reality and and perceived reality start to become blurred Mm -hmm. to us, the audience. So the next day, we see Maude, she's cleaning her whole apartment. Her voiceover is suggesting that she is back on track with the Lord. And she decides again to self-flagellate. She puts pins through an image of the saint that she has cut out from the William Blake book and then puts them as inserts in her shoes. And she puts those fucking shoes on (sighs) and then walks through town. Just fucking push pins in her heel. There's blood coming out of her sneakers. It's like, ah. Mm -hmm. It's so gross. She finds a telescope, like one of those little things that you can put quarters in. Binoculars. (laughs) 
Is that what you, they're, they're you looking at space? <laughs> it looked, but it looked like, what's it called when it's just one lens though? Like it was, they weren't binoculars. I thought it was just like a one. I lens. thought it was, yeah, I thought it was two, but. Well, one of those little scopes, <laughs> one of those scopes. Yeah, telescope. She's looking for God. Um, <laughs> she searches for Amanda's house and just kind of looks at it for a little bit and then goes home and then starts to cut up the book that Amanda had gifted her. And I guess at this point, since William Blake's book has come up a little bit, I'll just talk very briefly about it. So on William Blake, this is a mixture of information from Wikipedia and then also the William Blake archive. So William Blake was an English poet, painter, and printmaker, largely unrecognized during his life, which is interesting. It'll come up later. Blake is now considered a seminal figure in the history of the poetry and visual art of the Romantic Age. As Maud says in the movie when reading the book gifted to her, Blake was famously critical of organized religion. So the contemporaries who acquired his work were of various religious stripes. And so that kind of makes me think, I guess, Maud is in there somewhere when she's finding her own meaning. So while she's doing this, she's also looking at Amanda's dances online and like mm. watches her work. And we get a voiceover saying, I should have expected resistance. Nothing worthwhile comes easy. Amanda, Amanda, Amanda. You called to me, Amanda. You called to me and it was no small thing. Amanda, it meant something. Never waste your pain. And it's like, <gasps> what? Uh, what? What? So now she's fucking fixated. She's like, okay, God's giving me a mission. I got to save your fucking soul. So Maud follows Esther, who we learn is Amanda's new nurse. And she sits by Esther while she's sitting on a bench overlooking the water. Maud engages Esther in conversation, compliments her. Again, acting very well, being like, oh, like you're a nurse. I just think that's the greatest thing. <laughs> like he's really hamming her up and asks, oh, yeah, you're a private carer. Like, you know, what's your relationship like with the person you're with now? Like you get along and, you know, Esther's like, yeah, we're really good mates, but mm. I don't think she's going to last very long. And, you know, that's what's hard about it. You know, you build these meaningful relationships, but it just makes it harder when they go. But then Esther very, like, I wouldn't say flippantly, but very matter-of-factly is like, but that's how the cookie crumbles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because she's an end-of-life carer, mm -hmm. and then that angers Maud and she storms off. And I wrote, it's not like Esther was mean, she was matter-of-fact, because Esther can let go and Maud cannot. Mm -hmm. Because we saw from her previous post that she was unwilling to let her person die, and that's what she is. She's an end-of-life carer. Like, she is a hospice carer. But for some reason, even though Maud has this newfound sense of righteousness or religiousness, she can't let people go as they are. She feels the need to, like, save their souls. So, like, was Maud refusing to let her previous patient die to the degree that she fucking splits her chest open because she wasn't a believer? Or does she blame herself for her death? Like, she doesn't seem to be able to accept death for what it is, which is very interesting considering her profession, because Esther just has a healthier relationship with it than Maud does. Okay, so back at home, Maud ruminates about Amanda, and she starts hearing the voice of God, which is a distorted voice speaking to her in Welsh, telling her she'll know what to do when the time comes because she's always known what to do. So the voice says, my child, the hour draws near. Soon you will join the great embrace. You've known for some time that this world is just a game. Your life, your childhood, mom, dad. You could feel there was something more and all you yearned for was to touch it. I am proud of how far you've come. I am proud of you. 
take this last test and we will be together truly. And she asks, how will I know what to do? And, and the boy says, you have always known. I say this because it was preceded by some dialogue of Maud ruminating over how she thinks Amanda looks at her like she's stupid. And mm. she says, what if I'm getting it all wrong? What if you, God, are smirking or indifferent or think of me as a clueless idiot like that stupid woman? She's talking about Esther here. Is that how Amanda saw me all along? And I'm looking at when God says, you could feel there was something more and all you yearned for was to touch it. Like, what if she's gay? Mm. Like, all you yearned for was to reach out to this person and embrace this person. You will be in the great embrace. Yeah, this is like obviously religiously coded, but it could also, you know, we get the first mention of Maud's parents here and we don't know them as characters and we don't know Maud before this nursing incident. So what drew her to this way of life? Because obviously there's a deep relationship between suppressed queer sexuality and religion. What is this thing that Maud is experiencing because she doesn't experience the orgasms of God outside of Amanda's house. Mm. She never does. She gets the thrashy and gets lifted up and stuff like that, but she doesn't get that sensual feeling, that sensual orgasmic thing outside of Amanda's house ever. That's really interesting. So it's like, to me, I, of course I want to read everything gay, but it's yeah. just like, but it makes sense. I mean, there are definitely things here coded as such. Especially because her relationship with God is already so sexual. So like, why is it like that? But also, fun fact, according to IMDb, when God speaks to Maude in this moment, he is actually voiced by Morphid herself speaking Welsh and pitched a few levels down. So again, we're blurring the lines between perception and reality. Like, who is she having this conversation with? Is it herself? Is it God, right? Like, who is here talking to her? So very unsettling. The next morning, Maud adorns herself in robes made of her bedsheets, and there's a knock at her door as she's washing her face. It is Joy. So Joy comes in, she's making nice, but Maud is clearly feeling weird. She's not really responding to Joy. But Joy continues sort of pushing a little bit. She tells Maude how she was always so good at her job and that she's sorry she wasn't more helpful before. Maude had called her at some point during the night before when she was drunk and about and that she's sorry she wasn't more helpful. She says, what happened before? It wasn't your fault. I know that. You know that too, right? So she really is trying to be comforting. She's saying all the right things. However... <laughs> While she's talking to Maud, Maud sees she's looking at things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she looks at a bottle of acetone and notices that it's flammable. Does she look at like a flame source at all? She's looking outside at the sun and feeling the heat on her face while Joy is smoking a cigarette inside of the kitchen. Oh, that's the heat source. And before Joy had entered the room, she was filling a water bottle full of what we assume to be just regular water because she prayed over it, trying to like make it holy water. But then you off to the side, see that there's bottles of acetone and hydrogen peroxide. So she is smoking next to a full tub of hydrogen peroxide and acetone, which both are flammable. So you're like, I was like, she's gonna catch Joy on fire. I was ready to see it happen, but then it didn't happen. She sees a vortex form in the sky and then seems to take it as a sign and then lightly kicks Joy out, thanking her for stopping by. I liked too that Maude, she's in her underwear. She's in her underwear oh, yeah. in like a cami. She's like barely dressed. 
And then finally, when she does turn to face Joy, she approaches, cups Joy's face and kisses her on the cheek and blesses her. And I'm like, is this her way of dipping her toes back into sin again and coming back? I don't know. Or is it just like a genuine embrace? I don't know. It was but it's- giving like priest or like Pope meeting the public and blessing them. She looked like she was really embodying a saintliness. And she says, you know, you're so right. Back then I was so lost, but now I am transformed and soon everyone will see. And I was waiting. I was waiting for her to fucking shove her head into that into that top. I was like, ah, ah. but instead just opens the door, thanks her and ushers her out. And I'm like, I said this to Elise before we started recording. It's almost like how Maude is feeling these orgasmic things when she's in Amanda's house and this presence of God. Like this movie edges you because you do not know what kind of movie this is going to be until it happens Mm -hmm. because even throughout the beginning of the movie we don't think we're ever going to leave amanda's house we think it's like a haunted house feature and then she's out and about and she's in a bar and she's walking in town and there's ferris wheels and you're like whoa okay okay we're out of here oh we're back in the studio apartment i thought we left the studio apartment so it's like you don't know where the threat is coming from ever and i was i was just so ready like we were so ready for joy to die and then she did it and i'm just like ooh, like i feel like i just got blue balled a little bit like this is (laughs) Like, it's so good. It's so good at building the tension. And the tension keeps building because that night, Maude leaves her little apartment in her sheet robe ensemble, goes to Amanda's house, sees that the other nurse has left, and goes inside. She walks through the halls of her old stomping ground up to Amanda's room and finds a sleeping, further declined Amanda. I found it interesting. So the lights are flickering and she's breathing as she's ascending the stairs again. But this is the first time where audibly there's masculine breathing as well. Oh. Like you can hear God breathing. And this is the first time you ever hear like, or perhaps obviously it's her with her toned down voice or whatever, but like you hear somebody else breathing with her. It is also like, yes, it's giving the God voice that we heard earlier, but also that distorted sound. It's so reminiscent of the way movies often portray demons. Like demons are usually portrayed with like a lower distorted voice. And it's, again, the idea of, is she working on behalf of God? Is she succumbing to her demonic motivation? Like, does she know what she's doing? It's so packed with questions and significance. It's like Babadook again. Yes. With how you don't know whether Amelia is free or she's not. And it's the deep voice Mm -hmm. and the taking over. Oh my God, it's good. So Maude wakes Amanda up and immediately... Amanda doesn't seem scared at all. She starts apologizing for being unkind to Maud, and Maud tells her that the Lord forgives everything. She then takes the water that she brought and tries to bless Amanda, but Amanda immediately recoils and declines. She tries again, Amanda declines, and she's getting pissed at this point because it's weird. And she tells Maud, quote, you must be the loneliest girl in the world. She tells Maud that God isn't real. And when Maud tries to say, how could you say that after what we experienced when we prayed together? Amanda says that dying is so dull sometimes, implying that she faked that ecstasy just to try it. (laughs) Please, Maud, I don't know. But either way, it wasn't real. She says, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but it's just you and me here. Nothing you do matters. Which, oh my God, all the dialogue in this final sequence just gagged me. I was just like, this is such a good reading on the crisis of faith that Mm. people must experience who like want to believe, but are, you know, running against that doubt all the time if they haven't accepted that. 
And I think that Maud's character is not somebody who innately believed in anything. And I think that's what's important. Like she lived a life away from God and she's trying so desperately to latch onto something to give her journey meaning and to give her journey or her suffering some sort of justification. And she's realizing that she can't, like she's not going to run from things. She can't save Amanda in the way that she wants to save her. So this makes Maud cry and Amanda begins laughing. Amanda says, well, that was easy. And her face fucking contorts into a scary devil thing. And Maud's like, devil! And then like cracks her over the head with something. And Amanda flings her back and is laughing. And in a very demon voice says, take some responsibility for your actions. You came back here because you are alone. If you were a true believer, he would be enough. But it is clear now that you are as weak as your faith. I'm like, <gasps> like, we, oh. So cute Maud grabbing a pair of scissors and stabbing Amanda to death with so many stabs. And it is quick. And she uses a pair of scissors. Which I feel like it's <laughs> <laughs> a little bit gay. It's a little bit gay. So then that's that. Maud leaves the house. She gets home, washes herself, and goes to bed. So again, the discussion, <laughs> you know, you have that poster, K666. That is Amanda's studio number. She is actively anti-God. She's actively queer. Her house is the only place where Maude is feeling this like supernatural ecstasy, orgasmic, pleasurable experience, right? So was she a devil or Maude out of her fucking mind and imagining that Amanda's doing all of these things? I am camp she's imagining because Amanda is so sick that she said all those things. But once Maude clocked her over the head with like that glass vase, there's no way Amanda is going to just immediately sit up in bed and start saying all those awful things. She is way too sick and weak to bounce back from that with such fervent nastiness. I think that once again, it was Maude's own voice and her own fears coming through. And that's why she killed Amanda. So when she wakes the next morning, there's light up angel wings on her back, like invisible to everybody else, but we can see them. Mm -hmm. So we're like, okay. She walks to the beach in her robe and the sky begins circling like the water in the drain again. And again, we saw this in Amanda's bathtub in the beginning. We saw this in the beer. We saw this in the bloody nose sink sequence. And now we're seeing it in the sky for the mm -hmm. second time. So what is this representing? Is this representing like Maud falling? Because she always says to God, don't let me fall again. Don't let me fall again. Like, is this her descension? Is this her falling? Or is this sucking her up? Is this her ascension? We don't know. She starts singing a hymn about how she's so happy. There's no sorrow in sight now that she sees God. People are like looking at her. And it's very interesting because her bed sheets are pink and everyone else is wearing like very dark colors, like mm -hmm. blues and black. So she's seen in very stark contrast to everybody else. But she douses herself in bleach as people yes. watch. In onlookers, they're starting to get very upset. You know, we hear a woman scream, somebody stop her, somebody do something. But they all just seem kind of stuck in this paralysis. Like, what is this woman doing? Surely it can't be what it looks like. But as people are screaming for her to stop, she lights herself on fire and we see that she is enshrouded in this gorgeous, almost holographic white flame as she has her angel wings. 
The people on the beach who had been staring at her in fear now fall to their knees in worship of Saint Maud. And then very quickly, we get a flash out of that perception and into the reality of a burning, screaming mod for maybe a second before the movie ends and the credits roll. <laughs> what an ending, man. Okay. Okay, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Time for class. Okay, so you had just asked, is there a St. Maud? I do have a little bit about the name Maud. Okay, so this is from St. Maud. Writer, director, Rose Glass on the devilish details you may have missed by Allison Foreman. So this is on Maud's name and the character's first major rewrite. Quote, the name made a lot more sense once I decided it was one she had actively chosen for herself. Although the name Maud has Germanic roots, roughly translating to strength in battle, Glass explains the name was actually chosen for the pure sounding, but somehow still bland, appeal it might have to a newly pious woman. As we learn in St. Maud's final acts, Katie had at least some social connections before assuming the Maud moniker and getting rid of her old life. So it seems like it was chosen maybe just on vibes, but also Maud herself chose it. So it was chosen as a name that would make sense for her character to have chosen. It also reminds me, it's a very subtle throwaway line, but when she answers the door for Richard, when he comes to visit Amanda, he's like, oh, it's Mary, right? And she's like, Maud. Oh, uh-huh. So very interesting that he chose, you know, another bland, but very holy name otherwise. And then, yes. you know, she's like, no, it's Maud. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> so that's all I found on that. It doesn't look like there is a, a Saint Maud, a real one. So... This is good on Maud's godgasms and the inspiration behind that shoe scene. Much of that psychological decline is conveyed through Maud's volatile relationship with her patient Amanda, played by the bewitching Jennifer L. But even in private moments, it was essential that audiences understand Maud's visceral connection to the god she'd crafted in her head. Quote, I wanted her relationship with God to not just be a theoretical or academic or faith-based somber thing, Glass recalls. There needs to be some tangible way God communicates with her that we as an audience can get on board with and understand, even if you're not religious. That's where what Glass calls Maud's godgasms come in. These scenes occur throughout the movie and in some cases involve distorting Maud's face in post-production to take her reaction even further. That Clark also wore different color contacts throughout the film added to the chilling effect. P.S. Did you notice that her eyes were two different colors? I was going to ask you that. Was it always like that? Or was that kind of after the like Archie back ascension scene that one of her eyes was like more black or brown and the other one was blue? It looked like it was always like that. Okay. But I only noticed in one scene, and even then I couldn't really tell if I was seeing it right. It's very subtle. And I was watching it in a bright room, and the movie itself is so dark. So I think I just kind of missed that. Well, they want you to see it in two specific scenes. One in the scene with Joy where she's looking out the window and looking at the sky swirling. Mm -hmm. And then the other one where there's a very face-on shot of her at the beach before she lights herself up. So... Mm -hmm. That's where I wasn't sure, like, oh, is that a possession type situation, right. you know? That's really, I wonder. I didn't see anything about that happening. It seemed like something that was always there, but at least those two shots were supposed to see it. It is after mm -hmm. that moment. So maybe it's always there, but it doesn't start really playing a role until after she's held in the air. 
So, quote, the idea of having this very physical, orgasmic, ecstatic reaction was important to me, Glass says. We can all connect with the idea of wanting to transcend our body in some way and connect with something and feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. To me, what's happening in those scenes in her head is that, yes, there's religious ecstasy, but it's also tapping into that same bit of brain that gets activated by sexual ecstasy. So it is very intentional that this religious belief and sexual sensation is connected. Many of St. Maud's most overtly horrific scenes hinge on this concept. So it makes sense that one of the film's more memorable moments, that brutal nails in the feet scene that comes after Maud is fired from her job and has a one night stand, was inspired in part by BDSM. Hmm. Mm-hmm. She's a Cenobite kin, <laughs> leather mummy and daddy. That's where she's on her way to. <laughs> yeah, it, it actually wasn't God entering her. It was just invisible pinhead just kind of like showing up, some lament configurations hiding in Amanda's studio. If you think about it, the God voice, even though it's supposed to be Morphid's pitched down, it kind of sounds like Pinhead's voice. It kind of does. Because he has that like distorted sound in his voice too. Speaking of which, on Morphid Clark as the uncredited voice of God. Shortly after the nails in her feet debacle, but slightly before heading out to murder Amanda and set herself on fire, Maud speaks directly to God. It's a brief exchange that hides a phenomenal Easter egg. Glass says almost didn't make it in the movie. Quote, that scene actually wasn't in the initial script or initial shoot. It was something I wrote during the edit and then luckily was able to shoot later on, Glass recalls. We needed this final moment of doubt and then for God to give Maud quite a clear, seemingly unambiguous sign, which would allow the audience to go along with all the stuff that happens next. So I was like, okay, God needs to talk. What should God sound like? The language spoken in this final scene is Welsh, delivered by none other than Welsh star Morphid Clark. Quote, I'd been working with Morphid this whole time and gotten to know her really well. I'd heard her talk on the phone with her family in Welsh a lot, and it's a lovely, mysterious, old-sounding language, so that seemed fitting. But also, the lines you hear, Maud is delivering them, and then we just pitched her voice down. So it is actually still her talking to herself in her head. Yep. I mean, that sells it. Because if you're thinking of God speaking to you, I would think Latin. But she's not speaking in Latin. She's speaking in Welsh. And at first I was like, well, why is that? Is the Welsh language somehow associated like with the devil? Like, is there like some story or something? But I guess it's because Morphid is Welsh and she can speak the language. I mean, and it does sound scary. It sounds intimidating. And it also, for me, it helped. And I said this to you before, I could tell that that was Maud. And part of the reason was because she was speaking Welsh. And I was like, if this is her talking to herself, it wouldn't make any sense if she all of a sudden knew Latin, but we know that she's in somewhere in the UK and I knew that she was a Welsh actress at this point. So I was like, mm. this is something she already knows how to do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So like you think that she's talking to God, but it's just herself. She didn't all of a sudden learn a new language. She already had this knowledge. So I need to know if I'm misremembering that she knelt on pills or if it was seeds. Like I need to know because I need to know what prompted that decision. Because if she knew that she had these God complex problems, <laughs> which caused the death of her previous patient, what was it about her relationship with Amanda that caused her to be like, you know what? Throw this to the wind. Like, was it queer feelings? And she wanted to be able to feel everything. I need to know what she was kneeling on because that to me, like it makes sense, obviously for everything else that happens because she's delusional. Popcorn seeds. 
Okay. Popcorn kernels. Okay. Well, maybe not. That's All right. what Google says. Okay. Quick search. All right. But I could scratch them- that. But still, I mean, still, I could see them looking like little brown pills. It's not like it serves no purpose. It serves that her worship has to be self-deprecating mm-hmm. to some degree, like self-harm to some degree. Also, because I think this film is very much portraying Maude as somebody who is alone and has no help, I think Pills would somehow imply that she tried to get help or had received at least some kind of lifeline that might help her cope. And we don't really see that. And I like that the lifeline that she did choose, like finding God or whatever like that, is something you can't measure. It's Mm. something that is completely a discipline that only the person practicing can determine. And it also leaves room for her to just be like, I'm not trying hard enough. And Mm. we see that so much in her prayers where it's like, you know, this seems spiteful. Like it seems like you're spiting me or maybe I'm just not believing enough and I'm being tested and you're building something greater for me and I just can't see what you're trying to teach me. Like something like religion, like it's so malleable and it's so subjective. There's no way to quantify how much or how good you can be or you are acting. So it makes perfect sense that this spiral happens with her because she has no way to determine whether she's just getting a bad break or she deserves everything she's getting. And that's a central theme of a lot of sects of Christianity. I'm thinking right now about the Puritans. Mm -hmm. Part of their faith was the fundamental idea that once you sinned, you couldn't even atone for it. And we see that with Maude. There is no forgiving herself. There is no cutting herself slack. She goes harder. She hurts herself more, right? Like it goes from kneeling on some popcorn kernels, which already is, you know, ouch, ouch, to walking on pushpins, on little spikes. Like it escalates and, and then burning her on fire. And burning her hands. <laughs> yes. I mean, so yes, she goes harder. She cuts deeper, right? Like, oh, and that that is a theme. That's a theme that we see. And I really appreciate that it reminds me of Carrie, but not in a way that distracts me. Because you had even said in that quote that that she wanted to give her religious background initially. And then I would have been like, oh, this is just what the Carrie remake should have done. You know, it should have done something like this. But I like that we have this ambiguity of who Maude even was six months ago. And we never really find out. We get these snapshots. But because Maude is the eyes in which we're looking through and we're supposed to trust her... And that we can't trust Mm -hmm. her. We never actually know like what caused killing her other patient because she hadn't found God at that point. So was it this self-righteous thing or was she just not doing well? I mean, we get some dialogue from Joy that kind of says, we knew you were struggling and we knew that you weren't doing very well and we should have helped you before what happened happened. But like, why? And that shitty guy that she was with made that comment about her past or knowing a buddy that had fooled around with Maude before. Like, maybe it was something from that kind of lifestyle. Like, maybe she had endured physical traumas from the past. Or even just from her prayer in the beginning, talking about trying to find a purpose. It could be something as broad as that, feeling maybe purposeless or frustrated. Or, you know, she had this job that maybe first is what she put her whole fucking life into and then that fell apart because she had another traumatic incident there. Now where does she go, right? But I feel like also that ambiguity is what makes her so relatable. There isn't some kind of story that is only unique to Maude. There are just these like sensations, like some of these broad experiences, like some of this dialogue, like show me what to do or like, I don't know what to do. I thought I did everything right. How come this isn't happening, right? 
so much of what she says, I was like, oh, damn. I've been there. It's, you know so, I mean? it's so existential because you could look at it through, you know, the divine where it's like everything has a purpose because I need to believe that this means something because if it doesn't mean anything, that's going to crush me more. And she's <sighs> staring down the barrel of atheistic existentialism mm-hmm. where it's like nothing has meaning and nothing you do matters. And that comes back to a legitimate line that mm-hmm. Amanda says to her, nothing you do matters. That's What's easier to much. swallow? Mm. Yeah. Burning yourself on a beach. She took it so far because facing that alternative, too painful, too much. And especially her last words are glory to God. Yep. So she can't even like take the accountability of what she's going to do as this is something I am choosing. It's like, oh God, thank you for letting me do this for you. And it's like, oh my gosh. Well, speaking on the fiery ending. So here's a little bit more from the same article with a quote from Glass. Personally, I always thought it seemed quite unambiguous. Glass says of Maud's beachside death by suicide, which depicts an angelic vision of Maud, presumably one she imagines of herself, before abruptly cutting to a far more realistic image of Maud screaming and on fire. In my head, it was a sudden snapback to a very harsh reality. You see things on the news about people blowing themselves up or setting themselves on fire in the name of God, and it just always seemed so kind of alien to me. So I wanted to make up a story that traced that moment back to a relatable genesis and in turn carried it forward to a realistic conclusion. Some viewers, however, say they interpreted Maud's death differently, instead believing that Maud was, at least on some level, right about her faith in God, and that because she killed Amanda, the fire indicated Maud is now doomed to spend eternity in hell. Glass agrees it's an interesting angle to approach the ending from, but it wasn't her intent. Quote, if you did interpret this as Maud misinterpreting God throughout the whole film, then she's just murdered somebody and it makes sense that she'd go to hell. Whatever is going on between her and God, yes, maybe there is something spiritual there. But I think by that point, something that maybe started off as faith has now mutated into quite a dangerous sort of delusion. By the end, I wanted people to sort of realize like, oh, fuck, this is actually a very vulnerable young woman who got into a very dangerous situation and who very badly needed some help quite a long time before this and didn't get it. That's sort of staring us in the face the entire film. You know what that reminds me of? Hmm. Another A24 sweetheart, Danny from Midsummer. Oh, because she is so vulnerable and mm-hmm. she just found herself in this situation. And I've been seeing, like, you know, everybody argues about the ending of Midsummer, like whether it's happy because she gets this vengeance on Christian and has this newfound family when really she's been initiated into a fucking cult. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, we have this severely vulnerable person that used a school of thought as a means of healing. And in the end, we want her to be correct because what's the alternative? She died for nothing. It also reminds me of earlier in the film when she's reading that William Blake book, you see her fixating on devilish pictures first, like the demons and the fiery pictures. And we get cacophonous voices and then she flips to a picture of angels and starts praying. So it's almost like... That's what she thinks. She's almost like warding off this nature that she thinks already exists within herself, a very puritanical, like, I'm a sinner and Mm. I need to atone for everything that I've done before I found God type of situation. And that is her cleansing. Bathing herself in this fire is what she deserves, almost. It's that final punch of masochism because she has done so much wrong up until this point. But we want to believe that she believes she did right by saving Amanda and killing the devil in her. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, it is sad. And also that scene with Joy... 
That seems so out of nowhere. I think it's so important to contextualize a little bit more what happened in that hospital room with Maude. Like hearing Joy say, it wasn't your fault, you know that. And like affirming that she wasn't always a murderer, like she's about to be. She was really good at her job. We saw some of that with Amanda, right? Before God entered her life, she was a great nurse and she had people that thought that about her. So in that scene, originally I was kind of like, why is that there? But I was like, oh shit, you know, it really does tell us who Maude is or was a little bit more, that she had all of these good qualities. She didn't need to be masochistic. She didn't need to set herself on fire to prove that. She already did in a lot of ways, and she was kind of left trying to figure out how she felt about herself. And we never really know what that answer is. No. And we don't really know how she felt when she was on fire either. It's very troubling. But it's interesting because in that last moment when everyone drops to their knees and she's like looking about, like maybe that's the only moment she's felt revered, you know? Like, put it against the party scene where they're putting a habit on her head with a napkin, right? Mm. Like, this is the moment that she's been waiting for. Like, she's been wanting to feel in awe and she's been wanting to feel as though she's spreading this message and she's being revered and this is the only way she can do it is if she can suffer. Mm-hmm. Ugh. This movie fucks. It's so Yo, good. This movie fucks. It fucks. Yes. Really great. I loved it. Shay loved it. And we have some other good movies in the mix. Do you want to introduce our theme? Because I'm so proud of you for even being like, yeah, let's do this. Well, there have been some movies that we have had in circulation for a little while, such as Raw, (sighs) Fresh, which is very new. And that inspired the idea for Cannibal Power Hour, (laughs) Um, which isn't really an hour. It will be multiple episodes where we cover movies with cannibal themes. So Raw, Fresh, and then also The Hills Have Eyes. I don't know anything about it, but apparently it's a movie from however many years ago that has a lot of cannibal themes. So if you don't like cannibal movies, then maybe the next couple weeks aren't going to be for you. However, if you're like me and you want to give it a try, (laughs) just jump right in. Definitely stay tuned for that. And then before we know it, we'll be in spooky season. Yes. Full swing. Full swing. I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot to say about, like, literally consuming another human's pretty kinky. So oh. I'm excited about the research we're going to dig up about cannibalism and, you know, some of the themes in these movies. Obviously, Fresh was kind of a little bit of a phenomenon recently. So I'm excited to cover that for sure. And Raw will actually be our first foreign film on the pod. Oh, damn. Yeah, I believe it's French. Okay. So our first non-English speaking film, which should be pretty interesting to just see like coming from a non-American or Mm non-British like side of things, not even in our language, like wondering how that you know, differs our interpretation of it coming from the West, you know? So I'm excited to see how that goes. And in the meantime, if you would like to send us any requests to keep in mind for the future, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And or feel free to follow us on Instagram. That's where we do most of our updating if you want to stay in the loop. Also at the Horrors Podcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.